Good evening, everyone. Hi, my name's Ken Simpson. I'm one of the assistant ministers here at Summerhill Church. It's my great privilege to bring you the, the scriptures tonight to explain what's going on, perhaps, in part of the, in 1 Corinthians 4 that Ash read for us before. The other thing that Ash did for us earlier was she prayed, and it's really important that we pray for God to unpack his word for us because the, reading the scriptures is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing that the spirit needs to enlighten our hearts to. So it's great that she's prayed for us that way. Over the last few weeks, we've seen the demise uh, of a, a political demise of a previous Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian. Whatever you think of her politics, of her political stance, what did you think of her as a person? Did she seem genuine? Did, was she caring? Was she just a political animal out for the power? And wherever you may land in your thinking about that, let me ask you this. How did you come to that, that opinion? What basis did you make that on? What was your criteria? Was it her performance as a plague premier? Was it what she did in the, in the, um, in the bushfires? Was it her ever careful choice of outfit in the 11am briefings every week? Or... Did you know, and did you know that there was, in some of the workplaces I was in, there was actually a chocolate sweep for what colour jacket she wore and what the numbers would be? If you won, you got the chocolate. Or perhaps it was her getting the Opal card out on time. Do you remember that? So, what's helped you come to some sort of opinion or judgement about Gladys as a Premier and ultimately as a person? Because we're all involved in making those sorts of judgments all the time. Wayne Bennett, is he really the coach everyone thinks to, seems to think he is? Is he that super coach? Uh, is Joe Biden the president that we've all been waiting for? Or is he, is he just a doddery old man? And I'm pretty sure that you would have an opinion on something in there if they mattered to you at all. So what's all that got to do with Corinth? Well, the Corinthians, they were making judgments like this about their church leaders. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1, which will come up on the screen. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Kephas. Still another, I follow Christ. You see, they were judging them and following them depending on various things, perhaps by what gifts they were showing. Were they wise? Were they doing miracles? Were they good speakers? What, whatever it was, there were reasons that they were forming into these parties. And so the Corinthians were making judgments about people based on these sorts of issues. So how does Paul tell them to deal with this? How do you judge an apostle? Well, firstly, Paul says they are servants and trustees. Look at verse 1. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, in a way, this is not sort of judgment for, um, for, for going into parties, that sort of thing, but an understanding of who the apostles are. Back in chapter 3, we saw this. I planted the seed... Apollos watered it, but God has been giving the growth, making it grow. You see, the apostles had different roles. The apostolic band, like Apollos, had different roles, 
but they had the one purpose. They were there for the growing, the, the maturity, the building up of the church. And if that's who they are, then what is required of them? Verse 2. Now, it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. You see, if you're entrusted with something, you need to be trustworthy. I'm currently the guardian, the financial manager for my next-door neighbour, who's now very old and a little bit, you know, dementing, just a little bit. But I have to make answer to the trustee and guardian, the New South Wales trustee and guardian, regularly about the way I look after her money. I have to prove reliable in that. See, if you're entrusted with something, you need to be trustworthy. Whatever the apostle's competency may have been in other areas, trustees have to be reliable, worthy of that trust. But who judges that worthiness? Who judges that faithfulness? You see, when we make assessments, we so often make assessments based on the way that we see our world making the assessments around us. Gladys's ability to deliver or her failure to assess the moral character of a boyfriend or is it Wayne Bennett's win-loss record? You see, we judge by comparison. Could Chris Minns have done a better job than Gladys could have? Or could Ivan Cleary, clearly did, do a better job than Wayne Bennett this year? But we don't have enough information really to make accurate judgments because we don't really know what's going on inside people. We don't know what makes them tick. Why they are what they are. What's happened to them. What their opportunities were. Why did they do what they do? We rarely have enough information to make any sort of sound judgment like that. So who judges those who are Christ's servants? Look at verse 3. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, in some areas of life, there are all sorts of people who judge us. Our bosses might judge us at work, our teachers might judge us or examine us at school. Our parents sometimes might judge the cleanliness of our rooms, those sorts of things. My parents were very frustrated and judged me very negatively about the tidiness of my room growing up. But you see, Paul says that it's in Christ's service, the only person who can judge you is Christ. He's the only one who can look at your faithfulness and say whether it's faithful or not. See, Paul didn't even judge himself, he says. Now, what he's saying there is not sort of abrogating any responsibility for examining himself. He's not saying, oh, okay, just because I feel good about everything, then everything's okay. No, he's saying, ultimately, I'm not answerable even to me because, ultimately, I'm answerable to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I don't know any everything about myself, but there are parts of me that I don't understand. See, we all have motivations that we don't face, that we can't face, that we won't face, or sometimes that we don't even know about. So Paul doesn't judge himself, but judgment does happen. Look there in verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. 
At that time, each will receive their praise from God. You see, what he's saying there is, now is not the time for that sort of judgment, that sort of comparison between people and all of that sort of stuff, that judgment of, is he faithful or is he not? Because things are hidden. Not everything is clear yet. We can't see properly yet. Things are not out in the light. So this sort of judgment that we make now is actually a prejudgment or a prejudice. But when the Lord comes, everything will be come out into the light, everything will be known and all the secrets of our hearts will be uncovered. And then, then there will be the full exposure necessary for true justice, for true judgment, with all the information revealed so that a right assessment can be made, which is not in any manner, any manner, to excuse sin. Sin must be exposed and brought into the light. We cannot excuse sin because we don't know all of the facts or we can just leave it to the last day. You can't do that with sin. Now, in just the next chapter, Paul will act very decisively and clearly on the matter of sin in the life of the congregation. And while it's true, 1 Timothy 5.19, that we should entertain accusations against elders with some care, nobody, nobody is above rebuke for sin. But he is saying that when you try and start to judge those motivations for what's going on, for those non-sin matters, if you want, then be awfully careful, be awfully wary. And all this, Paul says, he applies to Apollos and to himself as an example, so that the Corinthians can learn. But what are they to learn? Look at verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters... I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn. Now, how would you finish? What would you write next? Would you learn the gospel or you might learn how to live or you might learn how to get on with each other or you might learn how to love? No, see what Paul says? So that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. I bet you wouldn't have written that. Then, he says, you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. They're to learn to not go beyond what is written. Now, there are a lot, there's so much written about that little phrase. But I think what he's saying is don't be wiser than God. Don't think you know more than God. Don't boast in yourself. Don't hold yourself up. Don't hold other people up like that. Rather, he says, boast only in God. So come back to chapter 1, verse 31, which will appear on the screens. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You see, there's that phrase, as it is written. That's been underlying all of Paul's quotations from the Old Testament so far. Don't boast. Don't compare each other. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Uh, don't say I'm with Paul because he's the apostle, he's the founder. Don't say I'm with Apollos because he preaches better. No. Look at verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, 
Why do you boast as though you did not? See, the things that the Corinthians judged as being so important are actually not significant. Who has what gift has nothing to do with anything except what God does. It's not got to do with how clever Paul was or how handsome Apollos was or how fit Kephas was or you or me or anyone else, the things that we do. No, it all comes from God. That's why they're called gifts. I was at my six-year-old grandson's birthday party yesterday. Yes, I was at a party. And I was, he was so excited to see us, to see his uncles and to have party food. And he had this awesome cake. Now, you should be able to see that on the screen. That is, in case you can't tell, it's a pokeball, right? And of course, there were lots of presents and he loved getting them. But it would have been most strange if, if he'd started to boast in his presence how brilliant or athletic or strong or clever he had been to get them. You see, what he got were gifts, not rewards. You don't boast in gifts. You might rejoice in them, which he certainly did. You might use them, which he also certainly did. But you don't boast in them. You don't find your identity, your meaning, yourself in them. But you know what? Lots of people do. Many people find their identity in, in their artworks or, or their job or their preaching or, or the, the direction they've taken or their friends or, or their home life. It's so easy to find identity in the wrong things. So now, he says, now because of that, it is not the time to judge. Now you are not the person to judge. And the information we have is inadequate to judge. And the gifts that you think are important, because they distinguish one person from another, are actually unimportant in making those judgments. Because that's not the way God's trustees will be judged. Paul is totally against judging in this way. Did, did you hear that? because it puffs you up, it gives you pride in yourself, it makes one person playing off against the other. But then Paul turns to the premature judgments that they are already making in verses 6 through to 13. For the Corinthians are not to go beyond what is written, for they're in no position to judge. Because you're in no position to judge, because you can't know everything and, and, and have the inside correct knowledge on everything, then you can't puff yourself up in competition with each other. You mustn't do that. And you're not in a position to boast about your gifts. So they have to wait for God's judgment, understanding what's in the Scriptures, to not go beyond what is written. But instead, that's not the way the Corinthians were. Look at verse 8. They were already boasting. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you had really begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. Now, there is a sense in which Christians are already kings. 
we have become kings because we've entered into the kingdom of God. We've been adopted in as God's heirs, as his adopted children with Christ. And so in some ways we are kings, if you want, but we are also not yet. Paul says we only reign with him if we suffer with him. So Romans 8 will come up on the screen. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, now is the time for suffering, not reigning. That's not yet. Now, we will reign with him when he returns and we are transformed into glory. Then we will reign, but now, now we follow him as a crucified people. And then Paul goes the next step and he, he compares the apostles and the Corinthians. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. Now that just drips irony. He's saying, look how puffed up you are. You're the wise, you're the honourable, you're the strong, which are all actually the exact opposite of the cross. Because the cross shows God's strength in weakness and shows God's wisdom in foolishness. Verse 27 of chapter 1. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, any boast that the Corinthians might have had about their giftedness or their wisdom or their strength or their, their position was truly misplaced there may well have been divisions in the church because people didn't rightly see themselves with the cross in mind, see them through that lens of the cross. But beneath those divisions was actually something far more disturbing. They were not viewing themselves using the cross and therefore they saw themselves more significant than they are. And it's so clear when, he compares them, when, when they compared themselves to the apostles. While the Corinthians saw themselves as wise, strong and honourable, the apostles were the apostles of the crucified Messiah. Look at verse 9 to 12. Now we've already seen some of the contrasts, so I'm going to pick up just one or two of them. Verse 9. The apostles are on display. They're being dragged into the arena like they're, like they're prisoners, like those condemned to die, he says, in the arena. They're made a spectacle of. That is, they're, they're shown to be foolish. They're made a laughingstock to the whole world. Or look at verse 12. We work hard with our own hands. Now, for some of us, that's, that's a good thing. But the Greeks of the time considered soft hands to be a sign of nobility. And anybody who had calluses on their hands was a slave. So to work with your own hands was a dishonourable kind of thing to do. 
So compared to the Corinthians, the apostles' attitude was completely different. Look at verse 12. We work hard with our hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I remember growing up, uh, and when I was growing up, every house, every house around me anyway, had a grease trap on their property. Uh, the, the, the waste from your kitchen sink went into this cement, basically bucket in the ground with a, with a cement top on top of it. And being the oldest child, I had the wonderful job of cleaning that out every eight weeks. It was fetid. It stank. And I had to get up to my elbows in it every eight weeks to clean it out. It was just awful. It was this rank, greasy, horrible mess. And that's the way Paul sort of describes their status as apostles. Gross, muck, scum. Because they, you see, were people of the cross. And they saw themselves in the light of the cross. They were beggars who had nothing to offer, but were forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice not because of anything they could do or of any contribution they made. And that's why the apostles, not the Corinthians, truly represented Christ. People who thought they were okay, like the Corinthians, who were impressed by their own gifts, who were puffed up, who were self-important, who were arrogant and proud, they weren't like Christ. Rather, the apostles were beaten, rejected, despised, scum of the earth. When you compare the two, which of them sounds more like a crucified Messiah? But Paul is coming to visit again. Verse 14. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me for this reason. I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. You see, Paul had fathered, he planted this church. They may have well have had 10,000 guardians. The word sort of means child teacher. It's a teacher. They may well have had 10,000 people come through teaching, but they only had one founder, and that was Paul. And so there was this special relationship that Paul felt towards them. And he's not writing to shame them, he says, yet. That's about to happen in chapter 5 and chapter 6. He's actually writing to warn them. He's writing, he's looking for a real change in their behaviour, that they would stop priding themselves in anything other than Christ crucified. Not being proud of being a Paul church, because that actually would be dishonouring to their father Paul. The way to honour him was to imitate him and to boast only in the Lord. To boast in Paul 
would have been decidedly not what Paul would do. So as a child of Paul, he says, forget Paul and remember the crucified Christ. But Paul also sent Timothy, his true son in the gospel, to show them what to do, to how to live, to, to put it into practice, all his teaching, if they were going to be Paul's children. And Paul describes you see, as his true son. However, Timothy's only the advanced party. Paul himself will come like a loving father, but he doesn't want to come with the role of disciplinarian, in verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant, as if you and I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? You see, Paul wants to come with with love. He wants to come gently. But if the arrogant ones who are shooting off their mouth and still talking about how great they are, then he will bring a rod of discipline. And then you'll find out what they're really all about. For Christianity, he says, is not about boasting. It's not about mere talk. It's not just about what you say to puff other people up. It's not just talk, but about the power of God found in the message of the cross, the message that transforms lives, that transforms people, that recreates them in the likeness of his Son. And that removes any boast, any grounds for arrogant boasting and leaving us only to boast in the cross of Christ. So how important are you? How significant are you? We start at the beginning to think about how we make assessments about our leaders. And we so often make assessments about them, not as people, but as functionaries. How did they do their job? Did, they, did the performance of their task live up to expectations? But how do we judge ourselves? What is our own self-assessment? Is it about how well we do our jobs? Is it about how strongly we play our sport or how hard we party or where we last went on holidays or which boot group of people we hang around with? Maybe that's you. Maybe it's qualifications. What degrees you have? Do you have a master's? Do you have a doctorate? Do you have a diploma? What do you have? Things that honestly you would never have had if you were born anywhere else at any other time to any other family most likely do you think you would have had the degree you have if you have one or the diploma you have if you have one if you were born in Eritrea or in a family that never had books on the shelves at all see when you lose your job when you lose your health when you lose your relationships you discover just how false and phony pinning everything on them is. But the cross, the cross shows us two things at the same time that helps us to have a real, a true assessment of life. Firstly, it says that you are so important that God died for you. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? You can't get any more important than that. But the second thing it says is 
that you are such a mess that unless God dies for you, you have no hope. You have no salvation. You actually have no future. There is nothing significant in what we've done or what we've achieved or, or how tall or short or fat or thin we are that makes any difference to that. And isn't that extraordinary? Because it turns the whole issue of how we judge ourselves, our self-assessment, our self-esteem, our internal value, it turns it all inside out and upside down and it gives you real value because it's value given by God not some value you've made up for yourself. And it takes away all of those grounds for boasting. You see, the power of the cross changes people totally, inside to the out. And it makes those changes, as it makes those changes, we start to see the world a little more clearly through the lens of the cross. We see ourselves and we see others as we really are. We see the great apostles of Christ as Christ's servants called to faithful service, judged by their master alone on the last day when all the secrets are uncovered. We see ourselves as heirs and kings, but we are suffering and we're rejected in this age and given the gifts of God to serve one another in love. That is, the cross changes all our self-esteem, all our self-worth, all our self-view. And that change leaks out. It affects the way we view each other, the way we treat each other, the way we talk to each other, and the way we live our lives in service of our crucified King. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we repent, we turn our backs on the times when we have considered ourselves more than we ought to because we've lost sight of that wonderful and shameful cross on which the Lord Jesus died. Keep our eyes fixed on the cross that teaches us just how much you love us, but also how desperately we need you. Please help us to remember that at the foot of the cross, we are all alike your people, both those who will one day reign, but who now suffer because we follow a crucified Lord. Thank you for reminding us of all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we're going to continue in singing. We're singing a wonderful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's a, it's a hymn that helps us focus back on the cross, to think about what Jesus did for us and what that means in who we are. So let's sing together now, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <laughs> 